3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement, and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, breakfast listeners. How are we all today? I hope you're all doing good. Um, The weather has been really cold (laughs) this morning. It was after yesterday's beautiful day. Mm -hmm, Definitely. Yes, it was such a drastic change. Very, very drastic. (laughs) I I was like, oh my God, I only came out with a t-shirt today. That's not good. (laughs) Oh dear. (laughs) All right, well, we'll have to warm up uh, through the show today because uh, we have an awful lot on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this show is quite packed, mm-hmm. so we're going to uh, give you a rundown now of what to expect and uh, brace your yourselves for uh, lots of lots of important stories today. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So first up, what do we have, Grace? Yeah. So we're going to be hearing from Robbie Troop from uh, Bunjil's Fire, who spoke to Munanjali Yungambe and South Sea Islander women, Dr. Chelsea Wedego, about Indigenous health, particularly the problems in our healthcare system leading to further oppression for Indigenous people, as well as the Inala Manifesto, which she issued. And then, Claudia? Uh, around 7.30, I'll be speaking with Matt Gradnoff, Senior Economist at the Australia Institute and co-author with David Richardson of the report titled Inequality on Steroids, Distribution of Economic Growth in Australia. We spoke about this very briefly in our news headlines uh, that fronted the show last week. Um, This report shows that in the 10 years leading up to the pandemic, uh, only 7% of Australia's economic growth went to 90% of the people. Wow. Yeah. So uh, we're going to hear uh, why that is and yeah, what the reasons are and whether there are policies or possibilities for change. Mm. And then uh, I'll be speaking to Fiona Scallon, who is the coordinator of United Workers Union National Ambulance. They're, she's actually part of the AEV, AEV which is the Ambulance Union's uh, union, which is like a small, smaller part of uh, United Workers Union. They are like a sub subgroup of United Workers Union, and just about the the advocacy and update on Victoria's current situation for paramedics and ambulance. And then I'll be speaking to our fellow 3CR presenter Judith Paffert, uh, who has been at the Harm Reduction Conference 2023 these past few days, and just getting an update on what she's been looking and listening to. Fantastic. 
And then we'll be rounding out the show with part three of our Autism Awareness Month special series. Uh, and I'll be speaking to autistic parent and professional psychologist Jess Farago. And Jess will be sharing her experience with autistic children and their families and her own story as an autistic parent. Yes, we've got a really full <laughs> show today. <laughs> it's very, very full. Uh, yep, so let's get to our headlines for this morning. Absolutely. Patrick, mm. how are you going there? Uh, very good, thank you. <clears throat> very good, thank you. Thanks, Claudia. Thanks, uh, uh, Grace. Hope all is well. Uh, well, to start off your Wednesday, residents in some of Melbourne's biggest growth corridors in Craigieburn and Pakenham are battling with the most unreliable train services, according to new data from Public Transport Victoria. The data taken from March 2022 to February 2023 reveal commuters travelling on the Craigieburn line in Melbourne's north experienced the highest number of late trains with 10.6% of services not on time, while the Packham line sees 3.1% of trains cancelled and the highest number of cancellations across the metropolitan network. The best performing train lines across Metro Melbourne include the Glen Waverley line, where 97.1% of trains arrive on time, and the Sandringham line, where 96.6% of trains were on time. So something there interesting about trains. Mm. And then um, a bit of more of an international news. Uh, many clothing brands, majorly from the US, have not joined the accord on health and safety in Bangladesh and Pakistan, uh, despite it has been 10 years after the collapse of the Rana Plaza building in Bangladesh that has killed over 1,100 garment workers. The accord is actually a legally binded agreement between global unions and clothing brands uh, that created an inspect and mediation program to mitigate safety risk for factory workers and to, to basically ensure they, they have the, ba- the best safeguards uh, possible and up to date. But as of April 11, only 195 brands uh, are part of accord in Bangladesh and only 45 are in Pakistan. And back to Australian news, Bangara Dance Theatre has announced support for the yes vote in the national referendum for constitutional recognition of Australia's first peoples. In a public statement, the dance group said, we encourage everyone to inform themselves, listen with an open mind and trust that they are participating in a process that gave us the Uluru Statement from the Heart, a process that has been collaborative, careful and intensely thorough. Meanwhile, one of the most audible proponents of the No campaign, National Senator Jacinta Price, has been promoted to the position of Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians following the resignation of Julian Lesser from the portfolio last week. Lesser remains on the backbench. And Michelle Grattan writes that Anthony Albanese must not take his eye off real and current issues affecting First Nations people in the Northern Territory while focusing on the voice. In other major news concerning Australia's First Peoples, the first Indigenous woman to represent Australia in international team sports, Auntie Faith Thomas, has died at the age of 90. An Anyamachia woman and stolen generation survivor, Thomas was raised at Colebrook Home in the Flinders Ranges, South Australia. Her fame was secured as a fast bowling cricketer who made her test debut in 1958. Thomas was also celebrated for her exceptional nursing career. She worked in remote communities in the north of South Australia and was once described as a one-person travelling hospital, a reference to the fact that she often lived and worked out of her car to stay on the road. 
A midwife, Faith, reportedly said she delivered so many babies, women started naming their children after her. In 2019, she was awarded the Order of Australia for Services to Cricket and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Communities. And that's all for headlines this week. Mm-hmm. Yep, we, do. we have a very interesting range of headlines that we have for today. And yeah, shall we get on to our first segment for today? Yep. So we're going to be hearing from Robbie Trop from Bill J's Fire, who spoke to Munanjali Yungambe and South Sea Islander women, Dr. Chelsea Wairiko, about Indigenous health, particularly the problems in our healthcare system, leading to further oppression for Indigenous people, as well as the Inanna Manifesto, which she issued. We'll take a listen. Yeah, Aboriginal health is not a health uh, issue, really. It's more of a political one. Uh, and it's the will of these politicians which determines the, ab- the health of Aboriginal people in this country. I just wonder if um, Chelsea's sort of looking at that sort of what's going on there. And she's created a thing called uh, the Inala Manifesto. Inala's a suburb of um, Brisbane. She attended a, um Indigenous Health and Wellbeings Conference in Darwin. She um, issued this... Um, manifesto, the Yanala Manifesto, uh, was inspired by the work of Lester Irabina Rigney and so, uh, as a strategy for winning the war, Aboriginal, um, um, the gap, I suppose, and the, and the history around poor health for Aboriginal people. The manifesto calls on for a new Indigenous health research peridium that recognises persistent health inequalities are the product of an ongoing process of colonisation that continues to insist that ill health experienced by Indigenous peoples is a product of black lack, biological or culturally. Foregrounds inter- Indigenous intellectual sovereignty not as a radical or alternative position, but re- renders visible the strength, capability and humanity of Indigenous peoples in all the processes and products recognises health and well-being as a fundamental human right, which means that health research is a question of politics and political struggle rather than simply a production of evidence based for action. Attends to the nature of function of race, not just in how Indigenous people experience racism in health system, but more broadly how race operates to produce the conditions of racialised health inequalities to persist. Demands of health researchers courage rather than compliance to turn their gaze on how institutions, structures, systems and process operate to undermine Indigenous health and well-being. Considers disciplinary disloyalty as a form of academic excellence and gathers the thinkers wherever, wherever they are located. So that's um, the gist of... Uh, um, Chelsea's uh, Inala Manifesto. So I hope I'm going to be talking to her very shortly. And um, actually, she's um, I'll be back in a minute because she's on the line three. I'll just get her on. Thirty-nine minutes past five o'clock. You had the fire bundle in. I've got a very special guest on the line, other than Chelsea Bond, who's a uh, um, I suppose you can say she's a Indigenous health researcher. She works at the uh, Queensland University of Technology in the Karumba Institute, I think it was called, where she um, 
been working on issues around um, health research. That's an important issue, trying to get to understand what's going on here with our people. Good morning. Uh, good afternoon. In fact, um, good Chelsea, afternoon. Thanks for coming thank on, you. sis. No, thank you so much for having me. I feel very honoured to have this yarn. No, I'm really honoured too, because I, I, you, you, you've got a very powerful voice, and um, and you know how you know how to use it, and um, mm-hmm. it's, uh, you're starting to produce some um, really good stuff, like uh, uh, the manifesto, uh, mm-hmm. what needs to happen. And yep. um, okay. so, h- how does research play a part in the scheme of things, and why is it so important, Charles? Well, um, well, you know, um, research um, has has been particularly violent for blackfellas. Um, you know, we think about racial violence in terms of the cops on the street, but what enables that racial violence is, is the intellectual work that makes it rational, natural, and inevitable. Um, is that the institutionalisation of the process? It's, it's, you know, that's where the actual well, racism stemming from is from these institutions. And well, it's the invention of race itself as an idea, and and I'd argue that the academy, even though even though people get that you know racism is bad, there still hasn't been a, a relinquishment of the production of racialised knowledge. And and I've got to you know I started out as a health worker. Um, you know, at the bottom rung of the, the, the racial hierarchy in the health system. Um, and, and you know, was frustrated with that. And, and as even in my health worker training, the texts that I had to read about us were, were just in line with what I knew about ourselves as blackfellas. Like, I first started when I was 17 years of age, and I didn't know we were so sick as a people. Because at our kitchen table, the stories that were told was about you know, Annie Dora surviving living to over 90 years of age. So I always thought we were strong, you know? Um, well, we're incredibly strong. Hey, we are. And, but when I came to study health and how the, the white epidemiologists had constructed a knowing about us through health was that we were destined to die. So these racial ideas are ever-present in what we assume are these innocent spaces of, like, health research. What's that old saying about uh, smooth the dying pillow? Is it that sort of... That, that was their thinking and it's still there. from the beginning. And, and that idea is still there. Like, I, I just think about, you know, every year we have the closing the gap report and the failed targets and um, there seems to be this indifference to the persisting health inequalities and in fact some you know there are those that see it as, as inevitable still why is it um, so with such you know, the amounts of income that have gone in to these identified issues over a long period of time at least nearly 40 years more you know 50 odd years when an average people you know i remember beginning with aboriginal um Community controlled health service, you know, yep. they started to identify these problems and the need for research and, and, and identify those sorts of things. But it's all seen that that's also seemed to got flipped on its head and it's become worse in a sense. And uh, well, yeah, it's like it's it's, it's sustained it, it's ingrained it, and what it's done is it's it's secured up a sense of settler innocence. Um, that they're doing their best. To look like they're doing deficits. something. Yeah, Absolutely. So the NHMRC. In you know, in more recent years, has made a commitment. Five percent of their budget goes towards Indigenous health. But when you analyse who gets that money yes, and exactly. what and where that goes, it's for the careers of non-Indigenous researchers, not for the cause of Indigenous survival. 
That's disgusting. And, and it still is really very disgusting. a body parts approach. Yeah, it's still very, you know, surveil the black body as though there's something wrong with us. Is it, that's and, just, it's not just the health system that's doing it. It's, it's no, the legal system as well and you know, childcare, all those things. This is what happens to the Aboriginal budget. We don't see it. It doesn't reach the ground. And right. I think that's the reasons why there's a huge gap. You know, there's a demand that, you know, we, we need a hell of a lot more resources than what we get. But even the meagre ones that we do space, it doesn't reach the ground at all. And um, there's, a, there's a huge bureaucracy uh, like taking advantage of that. Yeah, and, and and none of it's that's been a total failure if you have a look at the, the history of yeah. it. Yeah, and blackfellas haven't been you know passive in this. You know, if you think about the you know the the, the full the, you know most uh, the uh, best model of primary health care is in the Aboriginal community controlled health sector, Absolutely. which emerged out of denial of health care for yes. blackfellas. Yes. Um, so, but it's still an under-resourcing of that sector that we know is um, achieving amazing outcomes and. Most blackfellas who use a community-controlled health service know what the waiting times are. Um, oh. Our systems are under-resourced, um, despite being the best model of care. And you know how um, impatient blackfellas are? I'm one of them. You know, I can't stand mm-hmm. there. I can't sit, like, in a hospital or, you know, I'd rather just take my chances on the street. I'm, I've done that a number of times and just walked away, despite yep. the serious issues I'm facing. Something seriously wrong, huh? and I, I remember working for the health service back in the day, and you know when it was independent and self-determining and community controlled. They talked about health per se wasn't really a health issue for Aboriginal people; it was more of a political issue and a political Absolutely. issue of political will. And, and if you look at things like trachoma, which was you know the cure for it, was invented here in Australia in the fifties, and yet we got the highest rate of it in the world. You know, it was only requires a ten cent shot in the arm. Yeah, you know, this is yep. a it's, it's criminal what's going on in the way they control. It's, it's you know I, I equate it to an act of genocide while, while they're managing controlling our affairs the way they are ba- very badly. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, it just. Um, you know, this, the 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 issue of Indigenous ill health is is not a clinical problem, and that's what we argue with the, with the Nala Manifesto. Um, it is a political problem, and the one text that sustained me in amongst the violence of the white epidemiologists when I was seventeen studying was uh, the forward in the first ever National Aboriginal Health Strategy written in 1989 by the late John Newfall, okay. um, where yes, he he spelled that out very clearly. Um, and it's that text I still return to to this day. Okay, um, yes. Honouring the tradition of our black critical theorists um, who had an understanding of uh, our situation better than any clinician or epidemiologist ever did. So what's happened? <laughs> what's happened over that period of time? Because, you know, like, like you say, that um, I think the World Health Organisations adopted our definition of what health was. Back in the day, yep. they were so impressed yep. by Aboriginal people, you know, in spite of, you know, we come on out of ghettos and creating policies like that. I was so impressed by the, the, the Aboriginal Health Service's early days. You know, they created a, yeah. a, an independent national body out of nothing, uh, in spite of the government's duty of care and fiduciary obligation. And, um, you know, well, think, a, think... that sort of policy uh, you know, was accepted it globally as a, a definition of how what's going on on this planet, if that's the case, you know? Well, I think one of the challenges, and this is, I guess, why we're, we're looking at how do we build our black intellectual collectives, um, is that I think that Indigenous health is still a very conservative space. 
um, we've forgotten the political foundations yes. on which we exist and that some people enter into the health system being disciplined by their disciplines, believing in the lies that it tells um, and co-sign refreshing of targets rather than a radical reframing of that relationship. Um, yeah. And so it's not enough just to have more, you know, black faces in white spaces. We need to return to the the black collective strategizing yes. um, and stand firm on the front line. Um, and that means, and that's why we're calling for a different kind of academic that is courageous. I can hear what you're saying. You think that many the wider community can understand what we're talking about here? It's um, yeah, you know, they think they're doing us a favour, but you know, mm-hmm. you look at the amounts of money. Like I said, it doesn't reach the ground, and um, it's been absorbed somewhere else—infrastructure and, and car fleets and and, and TA. But it doesn't the, the programs on the ground don't happen? And what I noticed back in the day—that's when that, that the programs on the ground were the most important things. Yep. And, and people even were voluntary for these things. Absolutely. And, I mean, there's limits, I think, to what, you know, with 3% of the population, I mean, we, we do punch it by their weight, but there, there's also another side of this story and the explicit racial violence in the health system, um, and we see it in emergency rooms of black fellas being turned yeah, away or yeah. not being assessed properly, um, and there are any number of coronal inquiries um, that are taking place and often get overlooked. So we, we look at the uh, coronal inquiries into deaths in custody, but there are a whole lot of criminal inquiries happening around um, deaths in the context of health care, and no one is being held accountable. Um, and that would be the majority of our, our premature deaths in this country are in that situation. And our families have to fight even to get, get investigations into the preventable deaths. Um, and I've got a PhD student, Helen McKay-Jalik, who has been examining preventable deaths of blackfellas in the health system from 2000 to 2018. This is under the closing the gap era. There's over 4,000 cases that have been referred to the coroner with only, I think, over just 300 going to coronal inquest. And even then, when they get there, still refuse to look at systemic racism. Is this this systemic racism? It's criminal, isn't it? And it's criminal neglect of crime. And, you know, how do we get that addressed? Because that's... These are the issues, you know. We're quite capable of taking care of ourselves. We've done it for about a million years before colonisers turned up here. Yep. So, you know, you know... um, the problem is their application of healthcare to our people. It's all tied up in that, and it's it's. I see it as a, a form of genocide in in the context of Aboriginal people, and and, and if it's uh, this racist um, criminal actions going on in that level of uh, policy making and thing like that, is there, how did we stop that? Yeah, well, I mean, back in the day when I was at Aboriginal Health Perth, we used to have to do cultural awareness training, you know, teach them how to treat us as human. Um, I've now shifted in terms of as an academic um, and using the, you know, well, and doing intellectual work to help inform legal cases to hold the system accountable. Okay. Um, How's that and going? So, um, well, we've got a number of expert reports sitting at parental inquests at present, in which the states are fighting to uh, have kept out. Um, and so rather than appeal to our oppressor, it's about taking up the fight and what we need to do is build more um, black fellows willing to join that fight intellectually, politically, legally. Um, you got and, me on board. Just, I'm, I'm all... hey. yeah. Well, and the thing is, we've got mob that are, that are doing the work, but we need more mob doing the work at their work. In yeah, their work, okay, yeah. not leaving that outside and only yeah. going to an invasion day protest. Well, nine, on, to five, nine to five, black fella. That's right. And, and, you know, I work in a system that I, um, you know, critique heavily and I found a way to exist in it while 
you know, calling out its limitations and, and its Yeah, mind. no, you're the boss on that. And we need to do that. We need to use what we can use in that system. It's, you know, so, you know, don't, don't let that phase you in any way, shape or form. And I think what's helped me, and that's why we're like, when we set up that Anala Manifesto, is what helped me is the community of like-minded people. Yeah, cool. You know, and we have to remember the power of our community when we stand together and we strategize together. And so well, I guess what, what we're trying to do is build that community uh, more broadly. You're listening to Tricia Breakfast, and that was Robbie Tro speaking to Dr. Chelsea Wedeko about systemic racism in the healthcare system affecting Indigenous people. To hear the full conversation, head to TreeCR's website at treecr.org.au fire first. This conversation, uh, you, for, regarding this conversation, you can tune into Bilgi's Fire every Wednesday from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. And yeah, we'll, we'll be back with you shortly. This is Mystic Light by Cat Clyde. <laughs>
And that was Mystic Light by Cat Clyde. Last week, an Australia Institute report on economic equity rubbed salt in the wounds of Australians suffering under oppressive cost of living pressures and real wage stagnation. The report was titled Inequality on Steroids, Distribution of Economic Growth in Australia. It made two astounding assertions. First, in the 10-year period before the pandemic, only 7% of Australia's economic wealth growth ended up in the pockets of the majority of Australians. And where did the rest go? You guessed it, to the top 10% of income earners. Here to explain these findings and shed some light on why wealth distribution has become just so bad is Senior Economist at the Australia Institute and co-author of the report, Matt Grudnoff. Welcome to Breakfast, Matt. Thanks for having me. The results of this report are truly staggering. Were you shocked yourself at the findings? Um, I was certainly shocked. Um, I don't think we... I was surprised. And and to be honest, I don't think most people would be surprised by these results. I think if you ask people since, you know, 2008, since the GFC, have you felt that you've gotten ahead? I think a lot of people would say no. Um, I think that stagnant wages um, and and the fact that, that, you know, we've had the recent massive increase in prices, so the real wages, the amount of stuff you can buy has gone backwards. I think most people feel that they're either just keeping their their head above water or in some cases not even that. So can we break down some of these findings? And 90% of income earners receiving only 7% of the country's wealth growth in the period 2009 to 2019. That's nearly everyone receiving almost nothing. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, exactly right. Um, Basically, what we looked at was um, real per adult economic growth. So real means that we account for inflation. We take out inflation. So your income might be growing. But if uh, the price of everything you're buying is also growing, you're not necessarily ahead. And the per adult is to account for population. So economic growth for the whole country might be growing, but that could just be because the population is getting bigger and per capita, you're not actually getting ahead. So this is the real per capita economic growth, the kind of economic growth that you feel, an increase in your living standards. So we looked at basically what happened to people's living standards and we found that, um, as you said, almost all of that went to the top 10% and the rest of us, 90% of the population, got almost none of that. And what sort of an income threshold are we talking about when you refer to the bottom 90% of income earners? So to be in the top 10%, you've got to be earning about 140000 135000 around that sort of level a year or more. That will put you in the top 10%. So we're talking about people on substantial income. And can you explain why the distribution is so skewed in favour of wealthy people and leaves almost well, I- everyone else backpedalling? Yeah, I think this is a story of profits and wages. So if we think back over <coughs> since the GFC, uh, while wages have been definitely stagnant um, uh, and very, very low, and, and real wages, when we account for inflation, have almost not moved at all, over that same period, profits have continued to grow, particularly profits from large businesses. And those large businesses are mostly owned by people in the top 10%. So if you get most of your income or a substantial, almost all of your income from wages, you have haven't done particularly well since the GFC, but if um, a substantial part of your income came from profit, from owning shares or owning businesses, um, then you have um, had a a decent increase in income. And so I think really it's that story of, of 
businesses are doing well, um, but workers are not. So if our overall economic growth is not being distributed to the general population, are Australians being sold a lie by politicians who promote policies on the basis of their economic growth value? Yeah, well, that's the big problem, isn't it? So we're always told that the, the objective is to grow the pie, to make it bigger so that we all benefit. But the assumption is that we all benefit. If, if the pie is growing, but um, the rest of us aren't doing well, um, then there's no reason for us to want the pie to grow. Um, if we want to all be a part of, uh, of the Australian economy, if we all want to do well out of, we all want to work together, then... Uh, more of this growth has to go to the rest of the population um, in order to, to induce us all to want to do this. We'll come back to uh, how we get to that point in a moment. But firstly, I just wanted to um, ask you about uh, Australia's history because we haven't always had such an extreme uh, situation in terms of wealth inequality and distribution. Uh, in the 50s to 60s, nearly all of the countries. Uh, real economic growth was was shared and enjoyed by the bottom ninety percent of adult income earners. So, what was happening then to uh, to give that result? Yeah, we we looked at we didn't just look at the last ten years. We looked at it since basically nineteen fifty, and we found this massive change um, before about the nineteen eighties. Um, we, we, we saw a situation where, as you said, growth was shared fairly evenly. The top 10% got about 10% of the economic growth and the rest of us got 90%. But things then changed in the 90s, um, in the, in sort of between about, uh, during, during, sorry, uh, during the 80s, things changed, uh, where the, 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 the distribution was about, um, 50-50. That is, the top 10% got half of all economic growth and, the 90% got about half. And I think what changed at that time was that neoliberal economics came into its own. Um, in particular, ideas like trickle-down economics, where if you, if you make the rich richer, um, then more will flow down to everybody else. And I think that's what's actually changed. We had a change where uh, the, the idea of policy was to, to help business grow um, and give everything to business and, and then allow business to take care of workers. Um, and I think that's why we've seen that change um, in, in the distribution of economic growth, that, that, that really it's gone to businesses um, uh, and, and the owners of those businesses, the households who own those businesses, um, and workers just haven't done as well. And you compared Australia's position to uh, other countries over the same period, and we were significantly... Uh, more unjust in the way we distributed wealth through that uh, most recent 10-year period. Does that mean that what Australia was doing in terms of policy uh, was particularly skewed to uh, company owners and profit makers compared to other countries? Yeah, so if we look at other comparable countries and we compared um, countries and country groups like the European Union, so the European Union, Canada... Um, the US, the UK, countries like that, we found that they were all more likely, um, the top 10% was more likely to take a very large chunk of the growth. So at least half of the economic growth for all of those went to just the top 10%. But Australia was by far the worst. 
Um, none of the other countries had more than 90% going to the top 10%. And it's a great question as to what has happened in Australia. Um, wh- why is it that, that in particular in Australia, it has been particularly bad? And I think it has to do with our industrial relations laws. Um, in particular, Australia has particularly strict industrial relations laws that are making it very, very hard for workers to be able to get pay rises. The the prevalence of this kind of gig economy work, sham contracting, much more casualised, part-time sort of work, um, work where where people don't have access to sick pay, they don't have access to annual leave, they don't even necessarily know next week how many hours they're going to work. If, If you're in these kind of precarious work situations, it becomes a lot harder to go in and talk to your boss and and get a pay rise if you're not sure, if your boss can basically just cut your hours next week. So I think these kind of policies are the policies that are making it really hard for workers to get pay rises. And and because they can't get those pay rises, what we're seeing is is workers are not getting ahead and profits are growing ever faster. Mm, And we're seeing this particularly playing out in the um, university uh, employment sector at the moment. And... Employment, unemployment is very low at the moment. So in theory, that should place workers in a stronger position to seek real wage increases. But if I hear you correctly, what you're saying is the the casualisation of a lot of our workforce means that that bargaining power just isn't there. Is that right? Exactly right. So this is the big conundrum. Um, We're constantly told that the key to higher wages is um, lower unemployment. That is, if there's a real scarcity of workers, then businesses will be forced to pay higher wages. Um, you know, we're told that the unemployment rate or the, unemp- the official unemployment rate is as low as it has been in 40 years. But, you know, if you go back to the 70s, which was what 40 years was 40 years ago or the early 80s, and you ask people, well, what was the... Um, what was the the labour market like then, and they will tell you it was very, very different um, and that wages were rising a lot faster back in those that, that, that period than they are today. And again, I think that what's happened is is our industrial relations system has so radically changed over the last 40 years away from workers towards businesses that even with this kind of 40-year low in unemployment, even... In, when those conditions exist, wages still aren't growing um, particularly quickly and certainly not faster than inflation at the moment. And so w- there seems to be a break between low unemployment and higher wages um, that's happened in Australia. So apart from the industrial relations situation, what are the other areas that potentially could, uh, you know, see a reversal of this situation? What, what, what other changes would you uh, see possible? Well, I think that um, in particular, if we can't change it at, at, at that kind of business level about between the relationship between workers and businesses, um, then, then the government needs to step in um, and um, start to redistribute itself. So if the government were to step in and start applying things like super profits taxes, for example, on businesses that are making extraordinary large profits, like in the energy industry at the moment... Um, and then redistribute that to the people who need it. But 
Um, I think that's kind of, uh, while those uh, policies are excellent um, and we should implement them, I think at the, the very base what we need to do is we need to work out why it is that workers can't um, get real wage rises with 40-year lows in, in unemployment. Um, and, and there needs to be some change in the industrial relations laws um, and, and a change in, in how we view work. Work when, when, when we talk about, politicians often talk about, well, you know, my, my main focus is creating more jobs. People think of jobs as kind of full-time, um, permanent, stable things where I can, you know, get a loan for a house um, and, and raise a family and, and, and basically get ahead in life. But the kind of jobs that are being offered are not those kind of jobs. So there's, there's this disconnect between what um, people think um, of, of as jobs when, that, when, when politicians are talking about, well, jobs is the most important focus and what's actually being offered. And, and that gap is, is a real problem. So what's the response been from the government to the report? Um, well, the report has done exceedingly well. Um, it's been across the media. Um, and um, I think that there is a focus at the moment, particularly from um, the current government, um, on industrial relations laws. We've seen some changes last year that went through Parliament. Um, and there's talk that there'll be another round of changes, particularly around precarious work. Um, and I really encourage the government to look at that precarious work stuff um, and, and look at how we can make jobs uh, more secure um, and, and, and enable workers to be able to, uh, to, to, to bargain with um, employers um, and able to get those higher wages. Because at the moment, all of the benefits of economic growth are really just flowing to business owners and a small group within our society. And that's very unhealthy for our society um, socially. But even if you're not concerned about the social aspect, it's very bad for the economy. Uh, what um, the World Bank, IMF and OECD have found is that economies that um, distribute their uh, economic growth more fairly um, grow faster than economies that uh, distribute their their economic growth to only a small group. So if we want a faster-growing economy, uh, well, we want everybody to benefit from that growth, but if everybody benefits from that growth, then the economy will grow faster. So it's a virtual circle if we can... A virtuous circle if we can basically um, try and distribute that economic growth more fairly. Thank you very much for your time. Um, yeah, that's a really excellent uh, overview of where we'd like to be and uh, let's uh, watch this space and hopefully talk to you again uh, with a better outlook. Yeah, hopefully. Thank you very much. And that was Matt Gradnoff, Senior Economist at the Australia Institute and co-author with David Richardson of the report Inequality on Steroids distribution of economic growth in Australia. That's all, that was a very interesting topic, Claudia. Very, mm. very great. Um, yeah, so uh, later soon, I'll, I'll be speaking to Fiona Scallon, who is the coordinator of the United Workers Union National Ambulance, uh, about ambulance unions' uh, advocacy and their updates on Victoria's current situation for paramedics. And so, yeah, stay tuned.
From Iran to the Americas, the Pacific to Palestine, and here in so-called Australia, people are standing up for freedom and liberation. This May Day at Melbourne State Library, join the voice of Revolution Iran Melbourne, the Black People's Union, renegade activists, unionists, and people from all over the world as we stand together in understanding that we are all in this together. A lineup of speakers and music from around the world demanding justice and celebrating our common struggles and our common humanity will be announced on the event page soon. You can find the event by searching May Day for Freedom and Liberation on Facebook. May Day for Freedom and Liberation, 5.30pm, Monday 1st of May at State Library, Victoria. A 3CR community radio supporter. CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. I've had a few jobs over the years. None I've really loved. A mate suggested I use my skills to teach. Turns out I only needed to study for under two years. Now I'm in demand. In a secure career I love. Come on, kids, gather around. Are you ready? Fast track your study and start teaching sooner with an accelerated learning program. Visit vic.gov.au forward slash teach the future. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to TreeCR Breakfast, and uh, for all the listeners that are just tuning in, I'll be spe- I'm going to be speaking to Fiona Scallon, who is the coordinator of the United Workers Union National Ambulance, and we're going to be talking about uh, uh, ambulance emergencies, uh, Victoria's advocacy, and the update on Victoria's current situation for paramedics. Joining me now this morning is Fiona. Good morning, Fiona. Good morning. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Good. So, yeah, first question, just want to ask, um, for AAV's advocate, so what do you guys do to ensure a safe workplace? Look, we have a lot of um, opportunity to raise our members' issues up through Ambulance Victoria. Um, when incidents like what happened last week in New South Wales happen, it obviously brings safety to the forefront of mind and there's plenty of avenues where we're able to advocate on behalf of our members for a safe workplace. Mm, I see and you can you can go a bit more regarding the like uh, regarding this, but basically, how how has the current situation been for ambulance workers in Victoria? And I'm not sure if you've heard, but but recent like recently, unfortunately, uh, there was uh, a passing of a fellow paramedic uh, in NSW, and so it just really talks about like um, the paramedics are so important, but then you know there's there are safety people, but then at the same time. There's situations like this happening. So how is it? How's the current situation been for yeah, look, ambulance workers in Victoria? I think for um, 
all sort of first responders, um, there's a, a strain on them personally when they go out and do their job every day. Um, mm. When events happen that bring that to the forefront, obviously it, it brings a lot of things up for people. Mm. Um, we're mindful to make sure that our members are seeking whatever support they can to um, make sure that they are right to, um, you know, live their lives, turn up to work every day and be with their families when they're not. Everyone deserves to be able to go to work and come home safely. And our job is to make sure that as much as possible, all of the things that can be put in place to keep people safe at work have been. Mm. And yeah, that's yeah, that's really that's really good. And so, um, what what do, what do you hope? Uh, what do you hope AEAV uh, AEAV will be able to like constantly achieve for like ambulance workers? Look, we will be um, having discussions with some of our leaders um, in ambulance later today, actually, where mm -hmm. they want to discuss the kind of things they think need to be implemented. Mm -hmm. um, they range from all sorts of things as personal protective equipment, um, body-worn cameras, things like that. Now, that, that'll have to be something that's led by our members about things that they think that they want and need in their um, working day. We will then um, be working with Ambulance Victoria to see if we can get some of those things implemented so that our people do um, actually feel safer and are safer at work. Mm. And I'm not sure if, if this um, if this is actually uh, on, on on the website or anything. Um, but is is that is that is there like a support service that you that that now usually available for paramedics? Yeah, so Ambulance Victoria has um, a referral service so that people can access assistance. Um, mm -hmm. Most people who uh, have had long careers in um, being a first responder will have sought assistance at some point in their career um, and it's becoming far more and more normal for people to do that, to keep themselves healthy, which is, is a really positive thing to see, the way that society is accepting that, you know, sometimes... There are really difficult things people have to um, work through and there's support there that they can seek. So the, the ambulance services around the country provide that kind of service in most cases to hmm. their staff because it is a known risk factor for their, the type yes. of work they do that, they, that they're going to need some support along the way. Mm, definitely. And then um, Ambulance Victoria also has a well-being and support service. I'm, and, and I'm guessing yeah. that's also open to every everyone who who needs to go on that's that helpline. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And they can get referred out to specialists if, if required. Or sometimes they might just need to speak to a peer mm -hmm. about um, a situation. And, and that is something that can help them um, get the support that they need to speaking to another paramedic. Mm, I see. Well, um, I think, yeah, that's basically all for, for you, Fiona. Uh, thank you so much for, for, yeah, giving me the time today. No problem at all. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take okay, care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. And that was Fiona Scallon, the coordinator of United Workers Union uh, National Ambulance. Uh, we basically spoke a bit about a AEAB's advocacy and just getting a bit of an update on Victoria's current situation for paramedics. Um, Ambulance Victoria has a 24-hour support service. You can call on 1-800-626-377. And yeah, that's basically where you go for your well-being and support services. Um, for crisis support and suicide prevention provided via online chat and text and telephone, uh, you can call through at 131114. That's basically the lifeline number. And yeah... 
Next up, uh, I'll be speaking to a fellow 3CR presenter, 3CR, uh, Judith Pafford. Uh, she's been on our show for Wednesday, on Wednesday of, and for breakfast basically for a few times before, if you have listened to her. And, she, and Judith has also, uh, cons- often been on Earth Matters. So yeah, I'll be basically be speaking to her regarding the Harm Reduction Conference 2023. And yeah, we'll just, be talking to her about updates and how she's been with it. So yeah, stay tuned. Melbourne Jazz Jam is present the third Newport Jazz Festival. 50 bands, multiple venues and three days of great music from some of Melbourne's finest musicians, the 21st to the 23rd of April. Trad, swing, blues, big band, Latin, bossa, bebop and beyond. Get your tickets at the Newport Bowls Club box office, Market Street, Newport or online at melbournejazzjammers.com.au. Let's get the party started at the friendliest festival in the West, Newport Jazz Festival, a 3CR supporter. Would you like to reduce your risk of dementia? The Better Brains trial aims to discover whether targeted lifestyle changes can prevent memory decline in Australian adults. Participants aged 40 to 70 with a family history of dementia are allocated to receive health coaching from an allied health professional or health education materials about dementia and its risk factors. The trial is run entirely online, so visit www.betterbrains.org.au to sign up now. Better Brains is a 3CR supporter. You're listening on 855 AM, 3CR Breakfast. So, yeah, for all the listeners who've also just tuned in, uh, I'll now be speaking to fellow 3CR presenter, Judith Paffitt, who has been at the Harm Reduction Conference 2023 these past few days. And yeah, we'll be talking a bit about uh, some of this conference and concerts that she's been attending uh, the, the days before. And yeah, just getting an update on what has been joining me this morning now is Judith Papad. Hi, Judith. Hi, hi, Grace. How oh, are you going? I'm good. How are you? I'm well, thanks. And, look, and thanks for making time to talk about the conference because it's been such a fantastic conference, the Harm Reduction International 23 mm. uh, here in Melbourne. And um, I, I think you probably already have some idea that, you know, it's really looking at harm reduction and uh, policies that could change and improve the situation around um, drugs. And it, it, there's uh, over a thousand delegates here, policymakers, mm. UN officials, frontline health professionals, people who use drugs, this whole association, academics like so many different people from 80 countries around the world. Oh, wow. Yes, and, and because it's in Melbourne, a lot of um, presentations from the Asia and the Pacific, which has been really exciting to hear. Mm, yeah, 
this, this, yeah, I've, I've looked up a bit on this conference and although I don't really have the time to attend, but I've, I've seen, I've, I can see that there's a lot of discussion, uh, there's been a lot of discussions about very important topics. And even today, there's just so much coming up regarding drug, drug policy discussion. And drug has also been a, a very, uh, passionate topic of yours as well. So, and, and yes. we are, so yesterday you, you, you were there for the conference and you, you also been attending it this past few days. So what, what, that's, what were one right. of the, what were some of the highlights for you if regarding the conference well, yesterday? Well, look, I mean, I'll just go back for a moment because the, the one of the highlights really was the keynote address mm-hmm. by Helen Clark, who's former New Zealand prime minister and chair of the Global Commission on Drug Policy. And it just kind of set, made the, you know, created the setting. And she called for regulation of all drugs. That drug prohibition had been a profound and costly failure. That mm-hmm. drug use grows, continues to grow globally, and illicit drug production is increasing, and that the punitive drug laws that we have here in Australia, but also around the world, are a major driver of incarceration. Mm-hmm. We're like talking about 2.2 million people worldwide in prison for drug offenses. And of that, if you can imagine, 22% are people who are there because they possess, they possess uh, drugs for personal use. So we're, we're not talking about the big time people, the people making money. We're talking about people on the ground who are using drugs and then get p- picked up, put in prison, and that has a huge impact on their lives. So that kind of set up why we need to move away from criminalization of drugs to regulation. And more, can, you know, by the state and, and by countries rather than leaving all of that to, to the criminal groups. So, so that's, I guess that kind of set up the theme. Yesterday, or sorry, on Monday, then it was looking at challenging systems of oppression and those punitive policies. And you mentioned today, well, today we're going to be looking at how we might be changing uh, those policies, how we can move from prohibition to a more positive approach that will care for people and human rights. Um, yeah. Mm, I see. Yeah, you, def- you definitely did uh, go, go into a lot and really see like what, what were the dire situations for uh, regarding uh, drugs and people who ha- have been, yeah, uh, offen- had offen- drug offenses. And, and, and you you also you also went on um breakfast yesterday to talk a bit uh, about the conference on, on on Monday and then now we are talking to you a bit about uh, what what you've been attending yesterday and you said you said a lot you said a bit of uh, like um the the mood in the conference was very very up 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 and upbeating and lively and so how 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 did okay. you feel about that how how did you feel well, it going yesterday. What's amazing, really, as much as the presentations are the conversations you have with people mm-hmm. and the people that you meet and the support people are providing for each other. And one thing I did speak about um, on um, yesterday, mm-hmm. and there was more, I'm sorry, no, I spoke about yesterday morning on the Tuesday breakfast show, but there was much more yesterday, and that's about... Um, safe injecting centers, medically supervised injecting centers. So yesterday, one of the highlights was the study from France. Mm. Researchers um, released a study that looked at two different, what they call drug consumption rooms. And uh, they found 
like the, the findings from those two studies, from that study, one in Strasbourg, one in Paris, mm. found that people who use the drug consumption rooms or medically supervised injecting rooms are far less likely to um, inject drugs, sorry, far, far less likely to overdose, mm. to share syringes, have abscesses, inject in public, or commit a crime compared to people who don't use those rooms. So that was one of the big studies coming out. And then we heard presentations from a lot of people who were trying to set up these rooms, and also from here in Victoria, and the outcome of Victoria's Medically Supervised Injecting Centre, which also has been demonstrated to be very effective over two years of operation, and now it's going to be permanent. And people are hoping there will be another one. So that, that was part of it. But look, one of the other ones that was really exciting, that I found really exciting, mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much on, you can't get to everything, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. So, so I went to one that was about, you know, what happens in a crisis. And mm-hmm. one of the persons that presented, they looked at methadone programs. So people who are using methadone as an alternative to using heroin, they've moved on to medically uh, using uh, methadone. Mm-hmm. So what happens when the pharmacies are all flooded? Oh, and yeah. That, yeah. And that's what happened in Lismore in uh, New South Wales this mm-hmm. year. And so this person, the person who spoke has done research about how pharmacies responded and how they looked after their people. And, of course, some people were on other medications. It wasn't only people on methadone. Other people had medications they needed regularly. So this amazing story of, of one pharmacy, like the whole pharmacy was surrounded by water, no electricity, no Internet, but the person kept dispensing the drugs that were needed uh, with a flashlight or a torch, as you say in Australia. Mm. <laughs> that was a very North American one. And <laughs> people would come come for the medication. Another person moved in, took photographs of all the records. And particularly if you're on methadone, you know, you need, you need a record to say, yes, I am approved, approved methadone user. She took photographs of all of that, moved upstairs, and sent that information out to other pharmacies around the area that weren't flooded so that the information would get out. So what's coming across over and over and over in this conference is the absolute care people have uh, for the people they work with. Mm-hmm. And the other message that's coming through is the work that people who interact drugs are doing to look after each other in very different situations. And look, in that same session, there was also a presentation from Myanmar. Mm-hmm. How do you uh, provide services? In this case, it was antiretroviral treatment for people with HIV in Myanmar. Mm-hmm. How do you do that at a time of political crisis and COVID? Yeah, and... and- uh, and Myanmar is also currently under military coup as well. So how yeah. how did they tackle that? Yeah. So what people found ways. This is again shows like the dedication of people who work in this area. So they did more outreach and they continued to provide that service. And one of the things they said was that, you know, when these kind of crises happen, you find alternative ways of caring for people looking after them and getting them the medication they need. So those are just two. And there was also one on Ukraine as well. In a war zone, what do you do? So, I mean, the determination of people to care for people came through really strongly. Mm. 
Mm, yeah, and I, I think that that's very important, especially in the time and space of discussion uh, regarding something that um, people some sometimes they they go through it and it it brings them into really hard times. So I yeah, I think I think I think it's such a I think this is such a great conference um for people to go and listen and uh, and know and talk about the, uh, things regarding the drug policies and stuff. So, Judith, um, you you're also basically going to be attending this uh, today as well, and then um, it's yeah. and you also yeah. and it's and I'm I'm if I'm not mistaken, today is the last day. Today but I, is the last day, mm, and look a bit like you said earlier, Grace. Yeah. there has been so much to take in, and even to report on one presentation, another presentation. Each presentation has so much depth and, you know, still needing more, thinking about more work on. And, you know, it's just so stimulating for thought. But today we're looking at creating a post. This is the theme of the the opening talks, creating a post-positive paradigm, a post-punitive, sorry, not post-positive, creating a post-punitive paradigm. So moving on, moving on from where we are with some, the prohibitive pro- prohibition, punishment, blame, moving on from that to a more positive, like what are the possibilities for change, changing government policy, um, changing practices, doing providing better services even, and uh, also led by peers, of course, and research, you know, evidence. So today is going to be as exciting as the mm-hmm. first few days. It's, it's just been a you know, wonderful conference. And it dispels so much misinformation that goes around. Mm. Yeah, and and obviously uh, it, the, the conference needs to end with a bang as well, considering it's, it's the last day. And and when you and, and you talked about, and you mentioned just now a bit about like moving forward. And since this conference theme is about solidarity is our strength, so yeah, how how are they going to go go about with it? What what are you expecting from that? Well, people are you know, learning from each other, getting ideas. Mm-hmm. One interesting, I mean, I, one thing that I think is really interesting is countries in Southeast Asia, the Pacific, many known for their punitive policies, mm-hmm. are changing. Like Thailand now has decriminalized cannabis, just for example. Mm-hmm. So people are looking at each other, talking to each other and thinking, well, you know, um, are there better ways? What can we do? Um, and, but of course, it was, Australia hasn't decriminalized cannabis yet, so we could be looking at Thailand and thinking, well, you know, uh, what can we do? What can we do? Um, one thing, though, that I thought was very interesting was that there was a journalist in the press conference from Indonesia, mm. and she said one of the problems that they have is the government will say, well, those ideas work very well in first world countries, in rich, rich countries, but they won't work here. Mm. And she and she's asked one of the panelists, you know, what do we do about that? And the, the person said, well, you you work with each other around what's happening in your area, definitely, and uh, progress that conversation. But you know, there are challenges throughout for getting people to think differently. Um, and I think the more people learn from each other, the more we look at um, ideas that have worked then the more, you know, we all move forward together. Mm. So, uh, yeah, anyway, I have also done a lot of interviews, great interviews at this conference. Yep. So I'm hoping also to be able to present those uh, over the next few months even and um, generate more discussion too. Yeah, mm, around definitely. that. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, conversations regarding all this uh, harm reductions and ways to help people uh, to, to, to like, yeah, prevent, uh, prevent and avoid harm uh, with, with drugs. And also, yeah, getting, not, getting to know a bit more about drug policies. I think it's so important, especially in countries that are very, uh, strict on drugs. So, Judith, yeah, you've been you've been so amazing to, um, and been so passionate and talking about the conference these past few days. And I hope today you, I hope today you get to like really enjoy and have just really fo- focus on your time talk, uh, listening to uh, people. And yeah, just c- continue doing what you do. Um, oh, with, thank well, you. With, encouraging and and i will be coming on tomorrow as well to the thursday breakfast because inez from thursday breakfast is also at the conference on tuesday mm. so we'll be having a chat together about you know the kinds of things we notice grace it's been such a so lovely chatting with you this morning thank you so much for making time thank you so much for talking to me you take care and enjoy the conference today thanks grace thank okay. you thank you Judith. bye, bye. And that was fellow 3CR presenter Judith Paffitt, who has been giving, who has been attending the Harm Reduction Conference 2023 these past few days. And um, unfortunately, today is the last day. So if you want to head over to the Harm Reduction Conference, do go ahead. It's in Melbourne for all, all those who are in Melbourne. And oh, um, but obviously there's also an online option if you want to go and uh, uh, listen, uh, tune into uh, tune into that. Um, you can hit over to hr23.hri.global. Yeah, that's basically where you can get a bit on information regarding the harm reduction conference. And yeah, attend if you want to for yeah, this very last day. And so, and we'll be now passing on to Claudia. In part three of our Autism Awareness Month special series, we speak to autistic parent and provisional psychologist Jess Farrago. Jess has worked with autistic children in multiple settings and capacities as a disability support worker, school integration aide and now provisional psychologist. She joins me now to share her experience working with autistic children and their families and her own story as a an autistic parent. Good morning, Jess. Good morning. How are you today? Very well. Lovely to have you on the show and thanks for uh, sharing your time. Uh, Thanks for having me. Can you tell us what are some of the most common misconceptions about autistic children? Um, I think the most common thing that I have come across is that they have, and the words I'm using are, I would, if I was writing it, would be in inverted commas, but problems, challenges, deficits, behaviours or, or bad behaviours. And I think that this has created a lot of um, stigma to autism and the way that people approach autistic individuals or specifically speaking children. Um, yeah. So you've worked with lots of autistic children how would you describe the diversity and individuality that you see um yeah i've worked with a lot and not one individual fits into a box so i find it really important but also interesting that every single individual that you meet does not like mimic or seem like the person you've met before 
So there'll be traits that they have that's across the board, like um, an intense interest or rigidity, but it won't be the same per person. So an example could be, um, like, I've, I've worked with kids who are passionate about dinosaurs, but the next kid will be obsessed with uh, cars. So there's that keen interest, but they're completely different. And the way that they approach it is so unique to each other. So some might be about learning. Some might be about sensory seeking. It that they all are so individual from each other. And yeah. it's really important to be mindful of that. Yeah, they say if you've met one autistic person, you have met one autistic person. Yeah, pretty much. And I think what's really, really hard is that there's this common line out there of, oh, but you don't look autistic. And as a professional that, has, that works with a lot of autistic um, children, I can look at behaviour or mannerisms, so I use that word um, uh, wholeheartedly, but the, but the mannerisms in a child's uh, body language, what they do in the room with me, and I can see autistic traits. But if that kid was walking down the street, I wouldn't be able to look at them and go, hey, you're autistic. And I find a lot of adults who are getting late diagnoses are turning to people and saying, oh, I just found out I'm autistic for you. You don't look this. And I find that is really, really hard. Mm. Yeah, that's hard in, in lots of different ways. We'll, we'll come back to that in a, in a moment. But I just wanted to come back to the idea of um, diversity and individuality within um, autistic children. And I wondered, you talked about how there can be these global perceptions of what autism looks looks like. And if autistic children are sometimes put in one basket by the neurotypical world, are they being denied the opportunity to be seen as individuals in their own right? And and does this then affect the child's sense of identity? Well, good question. Yeah, I, I really <coughs> do think so. Um, there, there seems to be a lot of children who receive particular, um, it's a strong word, but training um, in particular clinics and um, places that put them into this, this box. And it's, you need to be neurotypical. And what happens is I find these children tend to become quite um, internalised. So all of their their needs, their feelings, their um, autistic needs, their sensory needs are all put into this, like, internalised box, I suppose, that they can't express their identity. And then they it, it becomes quite traumatising for them. And so you've got this neurotypical uh, community that, it's a generalisation right now, but that are trying to train these autistic children to be neurotypical as opposed to embracing their sense of identity and their autism and their strengths. I hope that answers the question. Mm, absolutely. We spoke with, um, <clears throat> excuse me, autistic researcher Beth Radolsky last week about the way in which social patterns developed by the neurotypical community, the majority in society set this code of what is normal that then creates a pressure for autistic and neurodivergent people to feel like they have to fit in. Um, so she talked about masking and camouflaging and also the, the fact that that can lead to exhaustion and burnout. You've, you've mentioned trauma as well in terms of uh, identity. I just wondered what you're seeing in, a, in the settings that you meet young autistic children, are you seeing the impact of masking on anxiety levels, fatigue, 
Yeah, yeah, definitely am. Um, um, I'm seeing a lot of children who have come from places where they're told that they can't feel and that they don't have empathy because a lot there's this stigma attached to autism that they aren't empathetic. And these kids are coming in and they are highly anxious. They are so unsure of who they are. They're awkward. They're uncomfortable. They, um, you can see it in their, their face, their body language. They just, things that come out of their mouth are like, I don't, I don't know why I'm here. I don't, I don't like autism. What, what is this? I, I hate who I am. And when I look back at where they've been and the, and the history, the, and this is just how it is. Like you, you get referred to a place that specialise in autism. You think that the best of us, you, you've got your hopes up. And most of the time, the parents aren't aware, and it's not their fault that these places are drilling this into children that you can't be who you are, that autism is a deficit, and they work with the deficit-based model and look at rigidity as, like, or a keen interest in an activity that's ongoing, like someone might want to play cards eight hours a day. They look at that as a deficit, and they try to change this person as opposed to looking at their strengths, which end up sort of helping the... The, the other behavior or the, the challenges mm. and the children that I'm working with that are coming in who feel safe and that are able to be who they are and express who they are it takes a lot of work they need to be reassured that hey that's an autistic trait and that's cool and they go really I'm like yeah but the more that I'm seeing this the more I'm seeing kids literally coming in and being themselves and I'm seeing a lot of these quirky traits coming through in the room that are really cool and really funny but I'm hearing from the parents that they're doing it at home and they're feeling safe and they're seeing their confidence coming out more. So that, to me, is already enough to see the difference. So what sort of questions should parents be asking uh, when they're seeking uh, support services for their children, whether that be uh, in a clinical setting or in a social or educational setting? What are the questions they need to ask to ensure that their child uh, is going to be treated and understood and have their needs met? Um, there's a couple of terms that can be used, but neurodiverse affirming would be the main one um, and finding out where that child is going. Like, If, if any uh, website or clinic that you're referred to says ABA, which is um, Applied Behavioural Analysis, which is an intense form of therapy, to train your child to be neurotypical or behavioural support practitioner. A lot of those roles are neuro, not neurodiverse affirming. So it would be recommended that a parent look for the terms neurodiverse affirming um, and uh, using the term autism as the autistic community find ASD as not an appropriate term to be using. They're trying to rem remove that um, acronym based on the fact that they don't, the autistic community feel that it's not a disorder. And I know there's a lot of controversy and everyone has different views, but this is the, the stuff that I'm being exposed to. And I think it's really important that parents um, seek a strength-based treatment or, or, and um, intervention as opposed to deficit-based model. Sure. Now, moving from uh, the experience of the autistic child to that of the autistic parent, um, you yourself self-diagnosed as autistic some time ago and recently undertook a screening confirming that identification. I wonder what this understanding of yourself has meant for you 
And has it impacted the way you feel or identify as a parent or do you just go along as you always have been? Good question. Um, It's really quite an interesting journey. I was thinking about this morning and I was like, I always knew that I was quirky, if we put that word in there. And I've always loved being different, but I know that I haven't fit in in a lot of places and that's totally okay. But then when I had my son and I discovered that he was neurodivergent, I didn't even need to try to understand how he thought. It just, like, I got it. But I thought that I got it when I thought I was neurotypical. But I, I thought I got him because I'm observant, I'm intuitive, I did a lot of research to understand him. But then as time went on and I did a lot of research and reading into autism, especially in women, and I was like, oh, that, that, that's me. And then I started realising I was understanding him because I'm neurodivergent myself. And I, what's happened with me, um, kind of gone hand in hand as a parent and as a psychologist, that I have seen how important it is to be neurodiverse affirming, to be understanding of your identity, and how that has, that, that has brought out so much positivity to my parenting, to my relationship with my son. He is extremely secure within himself. And we all have moments, you know, he's a, he's a kid. Um, but most of the time he's really confident in who he is and his quirks and his neurodivergent traits. We're very open in our language at home, so he doesn't really get the terms per se, but he does know the words of neurodivergence, autism and other neurodivergent terms. And as a clinician, it has brought me into this space of being able to relate to my clients. Like, I sit there with kids and they talk about things that they can do and I go, oh, my God, I can do that. I've always been able to do that. I I was like that at your age. And I can relate. And because I can relate, they feel understood. And I have parents contacting me afterwards saying, my child finally said that they feel understood. So your own autism has allowed you a, a greater insight into both the, the children you work with and your, your own child. A hundred percent. And even with um, adults, uh, oh, we talk about children, but just everyone. I just feel I can completely relate and understand and sit with them and they feel heard. And being heard is so important. Absolutely. A common assumption about autistic parents is that they don't bond in the same way as neurotypical parents. I wonder how you react to that statement. It's a tough one because everyone is so different. Um, There are a number of uh, autistic mothers who have a very uh, understood relationship with their child in the sense that they both are quite, they don't like physical touch, their love language is affirmations but they get each other because they have an understanding. Um, I'm, I've got a very strong bond with my son, like very strong, but that could be my, our personalities. That may not be the autism. So that's a really interesting question. Um, I think it gets, it, it changes if you get a parent who doesn't fully understand autism. Yes, but is on that journey. You can see the bond start to form. And I think if, you're, if the parent is neurotypical or neurodivergent, it can somewhat play a part in the sense there's a difference between living it and understanding it. Mm. And I think if you live it, the bond, and I, I don't know this is a figure of speech, could be potentially stronger. But then 
I've also seen relationships really strong between a neurotypical and, a, and an autistic child because the, the parent works at understanding them. Mm. Mm. And I wondered also about your experience um, as a mother being with other mothers, whether they be autistic, non-autistic um, parents, uh, from a couple of perspectives, both about your feelings uh, and identity within uh, a peer group and also the need to socially communicate, which is quite a, a strong part of being part of mothers' groups. Yeah. Um, I found it really hard. Um, I found it more hard as I discovered my um, identification as autism. Um, I discovered over the years that my closest friends were all neurodivergent, so we just work. And I feel supported and understood, but I've, I've, I have found it very hard connecting with those who aren't. And I think what really is interesting is that, and I find this quite common among autistic mothers or women, is this uh, the way that I understand things and see the world and talk about things is a completely different level. And so I find that when I'm in a neurotypical surrounding a group setting, the level of conversation is, and they're all interesting conversations, but I feel a bit lost because I see like a raindrop on a leaf, the most amazing, intense thing ever, but to them it's okay, it's a leaf. So I find that there's that big difference and I found it really difficult navigating that and I felt quite lost and isolated. Mm, I can understand that. Yeah. So what were the parts that came easily for you? Understanding me and, and understanding my neurodivergent brain and why I do things and why I see things and understanding that when I do something or feel something or say something, that's not autism being an, ex an excuse. It's autism being an under understanding mm -hmm. and really seeing the world through a completely different lens and it making sense as opposed to years and years and years of me not understanding why I'm like that and masking so much um, and everyone's masking is so unique as well and I thought that I was this class clown that was hyperactive and funny and silly um, but I discovered that I feel so uncomfortable in so many settings that I turn into a fool because it makes me feel better mm. and because if everyone's laughing at me then hey they don't know who I really am but I discovered it was my masking and then I started to uh, feel this what you just is autistic burnout. There's another term that's used around there, um, autistic hangover, where I was coming home and I was just like, what well, hit me? And I was exhausted. I'd, I'd be emotional. And um, I just didn't know what was going on. I was having what I would describe as an adult tantrum or meltdown. Could not work it out. And then I started to see moments where I was holding it together in a setting, like a professional setting, really holding it together. And come home and I was like a child in a lolly shop who had too much sugar. I was so hyperactive and I couldn't work out why. And that's another form of um, masking because I'm coming home and the real me is sort of coming out, but it's still up. Mm. We're going to have to wrap up shortly, unfortunately. Um, but I just wanted to ask you one final question about whether there are supports and information available specifically for autistic parents in relation to their needs as opposed to the supports and resources uh, available to support a child's needs? 
Um, I find what's really helpful is there are a number of neurodiverse affirming um, women and mothers on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. I don't have TikTok, but I know that they share it, who are women who live with it. And uh, there's a few that I recommend. Um, there's Christina Keeble, who uh, does a lot of really good um, posts and uh, understanding. So I find reading it and listening to someone who lives with it is the best way to learn. Um, there's the peaceful parent, who is uh, a, a mother and a clinician in the field of autism with PDA, which is a sub-profile of autism, which is very common. There's also Christy Forbes, uh, K-R-I-S-T-Y, F-O-R-B-E-S, Christy Forbes. She's brilliant. Um, so I find they're the ones I can think of for the top of my head. Um, Fantastic. We'll... Um might put all those up on our show notes so our listeners yeah. can uh, follow up if they're interested. Cool. And thank you so much for talking with us. It's It's been uh, fascinating and you've opened up so many areas of um, that we could explore further another time. Well, thank you so much for having me and it's so wonderful to sort of spread the affirming word out there. Thank you, Jess. That was uh, autistic parent and provisional psychologist Jess Farago speaking about the common misconceptions concerning autistic children, advocating for the autistic child and her lived experience as an autistic parent. And we'll be putting uh, all those uh, support uh, contacts that Jess mentioned on our website and uh, you can also head to Amaze uh, for support and more information. Next week we'll be uh, finishing up our series uh, with a final segment on uh, autism and neurodivergence on screen. So uh, we'll look forward to that. And I think that pretty much rounds out our show for today. So Yeah, definitely. It has been a very t- tiring and uh, tough show for today, but, yeah, it's a good, good challenge. <laughs> yeah, good so. challenge. Back-to-back uh, live guests. Thank you to all our guests and thanks for our listeners and we'll see you next week. All right, see you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.